When some people go to the fair, they eat strange food for fun. But fascist Italians weren't like other people. Find out more on this episode of Delicious History. Delicious History is a podcast designed to show not just how history has affected food, but how food has affected history. For more information, check us out on our social media at Delicious History Podcast on both Instagram and Facebook, as well as our website, delicioushistorypodcast.com. Like the show? Of course, what's not to like? Then be sure to give us a thumbs up or five-star rating on any type of platform that you're using. And be sure to subscribe for future episodes. Really like the show? Of course, what's not to like? Then support us on our Patreon at patreon.com slash delicioushistory. And speaking of support for the show, this episode is sponsored by Awards Co. These guys have been around since the 1950s and are still one of the top providers of trophies, plaques, medals, or just about any other type of award or recognition you could think of. Whether you're looking for something for your winners on your sports team, a way to show your employees just how much you appreciate them, or a really sad way to remember how you're the world's greatest grandma, check out awardsco.com. And to make the deal even better, if you use the code DM10 at checkout, you'll get 10% off your next order. Just go to awardsco.com, place your order, and put in code DM10 for 10% off at your checkout. Supporting our sponsors really helps out the podcast, so be sure to check out awardsco.com. This week, we're going to be talking about something very similar to what we mentioned last week, and that's how food affected life and politics during fascist Italy. The reason we're going to be talking about two different aspects of the same subject is because somebody had so much fun with us last week, they decided to join us again. Once again, we are joined by our special guest, Dr. Diana Garvin, professor of Italian studies at the University of Oregon. Again, uh, as a reminder, she has come out with a new book, Feeding Fascism, The Politics of Women's Food Work. Diana, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, last time was a, was a great, very interesting talking about the women in the rice fields. But today we're going to be talking about something in the same vein, around the same time, but quite a bit different. And that's going to be futurism, or specifically Italian futurism. So why don't you start out by letting us understand what exactly that means, that concept of Italian futurism. It helps to start with the Futurist Manifesto. So this is written by Filippo Tommaso or F.T. Marinetti in 1909 um, and appeared on the pages of the Parisian journal, The Figaro. Marinetti called for speed, hygiene, and for war. Um, he was obsessed with breaking away from Italy's past. And he intended to make this resolution. He had intended to bring this revolution to the world of the arts, but also beyond that. So Marinetti and the Futurists began by turning the arts into something that is bright, colorful, dynamic, burn the museums, he said. He wanted something that was new, uh, literally a new perspective with aeropitura, um, or basically painting from the point of view of an airplane. He wanted to bring speed and technology 
into the arts world. It's interesting that you mentioned the word hygiene because a lot of times when we think about futurism, as I mentioned when we talked about this before, we think about art. And when we think about artists, we think of very liberal people who want everyone to learn and, and to, you know, to, to, to hug and kiss and be all that. But when he talked about hygiene, I mean, sometimes he was talking about physical hygiene, but he was talking about war as being hygiene. He's talking about just wiping people off the face of the earth. He was. And I think the, the quote from the Futurist Manifesto is, war is the only hygiene of the world. So that's why I look at Marinetti and feeding fascism, the politics of women's food work. Um, because in many ways, the way that the futurists were looking at food in terms of art is the way that the fascist party will approach food policy in the years to come. Yeah, that's that's in, that's incredible. So let's go, let's go on with that theme. Let's go a little bit further. So there was one particular event that we wanted to talk about today, and that was the 1931 Futurist Feast. Now, explain what that, what that was for us. So this grand futurist banquet took place in Paris in 1931, and the context is significant. It occurred at the Colonial Exposition. So this was an ongoing six-month event, a little bit like a World's Fair. Only at this event, parallel European powers were demonstrating what their colonial projects might look like to one another. And Italy had a pavilion. Their pavilion wasn't just a building like any other. It was actually designed as a restaurant. Um, so Very Italian. Guido Fori <laughs> I know, it makes sense. <laughs> no surprises um, there. <laughs> and it's uh, if you look at the building, it looks almost like an art deco cafe. So it's designed by uh, Guido Fiorini, one of the futurists. Because once the futurists start with the arts in general, they hopscotch across architecture, sculpture, painting. They even arrive in toys, fashion, and finally food. So this pavilion, it looks like a futurist ship. And in fact, the idea is that you were going to sail across the Mediterranean to taste Italy's colonial fruits of empire. Um, there's a big, tall mask with Italia written right down the side. There are porthole windows below it. And then if you peek through those windows, enter the cafe itself, there's a set of futurist paintings. Um, these are done by Enrico uh, Prampolini, so another futurist. Mm -hmm. And they show scenes of this strange mashup of African imagery, so in particular a lot of animals, uh, elephants, monkeys, and then Italian technology and music. There are radios, there are um, little sonic waves that are uh, drawn in. So it's the strangest mashup. And you have to think about it. Whenever you walk into a restaurant, the architecture and the design of that restaurant really conditions the evening that you have in that space. So what would it have meant to have a dinner or have a lunch at this colonial exhibition when you're surrounded by this type of a restaurant space. Now, talking about colonialism, in 1931, what did the Italians actually have at that point? That So that's a great question. A lot of people think that colonialism took place entirely under fascism, but it actually started many years prior in 1890 um, during the liberal period. So there are already settlements in Libya. Asmara has a 
has Italian armies lining up, getting ready for in the invasion of Ethiopia. That'll happen five years hence in 19, in um, October 1935. Um, and it's even expanded into uh, further south into Somalia. So at this point, Italy has economic strongholds and it's gearing up for a full invasion of Ethiopia. When we think about a lot of, you know, you talk about this, this uh, exhibition, you know, in modern times we think about similar exhibitions and we're showing off new technology. You know, uh, you know, technology companies will come together, show their newest versions of their cell phones or, or smart cars or what have you. Or even we see things like uh, Star Trek inventions or, or, or you, know, comic, you know, comic cons and things like that. This was basically the same thing, but showing off these are the people that we have conquered and enslaved. For, for Europeans. It is exactly that. So, and that was um, having a, a large army, a large capable army was in this period seen as one of those symbols of international dominance and might. So in line with this kind of showcasing of new technologies and new people at the conferences, it makes sense that Italy would have chosen the futurists in order to be basically their conference speakers to show off this is what Italy is going to be doing if it is successful as a latecomer to um, to the scramble for Africa, and it's doing it through food. Right. That's and that's very important because we have to think about by this time, most major European powers already had quite a bit of uh, of land in Africa and other parts of the world, whereas Italy was really again because this was a new country. We talked about in our last episode that because this was a new country that really had never been a country before ever. It wasn't just a political change. It was really the first time this peninsula was unified outside of the Roman Empire. And so they were really trying to catch up and in a lot of ways, perhaps try to try to compensate uh, for, for being the new kids on the block. Compensation is a very good way to put it. Yes, because it was um, it was striving <laughs> to avenge what it what Italy had seen as past humiliations in Africa. Most famously under previous government, in 1896, the Italians lost the Battle of Adwa, and this was the only major defeat of Europeans by African forces in its time. So it was it was viewed in Italy as a national hum, uh, humiliation that authoritarians like Benito Mussolini were going to strive to avenge. Right. Now, you are a professor of Italian studies, not just of Italian language, but of Italian culture. So I'm sure that uh, you can back me up when I say that Italians overall are perhaps unhealthily obsessed with food uh, when it comes to well, our mothers, our mothers and food. It's kind of like the two things that Italians obsess about. And so the idea of really trying to, to drive up this national pride, fervor, uh, ambitions for bigger and better things, really the best way to do that is to show it via food in this, uh, in this exhibition that you were talking about. It was a way of rewriting foreign foods as Italian ones. Um, it was uh, kind of a, it was a strange. Like, new can you give us an example of that? Sure, it's um, it's one of the first places where you see Italian cuisine trying to make sense of bananas and pineapples, for example. Um, <laughs> in fact, in fact, there's not on pizza, more, not on pizza, not on pizza, exactly. <laughs> in fact, they wouldn't cross that line more, even then. <laughs> absolutely, the worst there. Oh, there are truly some horrifying recipes that come out of this period. It's um. Before um, before Italian cuisine finally settles on um, keeping fruit in the fruit section of the menu, so basically keeping it in um, 
mixed uh, mixed fruit bowls and desserts, things like that. You see bananas ending up in savory dishes, which interestingly enough would be a little bit closer to Somali cuisine. So Italian cuisine is itself famously conservative, and it's very slow to take on new ingredients, particularly new preparations. Once right. it does, then they do stay for a long time. And obviously, since time immemorial, Italian cuisine has taken on new foods. I mean, no, look no further than the Colombian exchange and the tomato. Yeah, we actually had an entire episode about, about the Colombian exchange, and it was interesting how Italians, for some reason, as you mentioned, are extremely conservative. When it comes to their food, um, I remember my my sister. She's she's lived in Italy for twenty some years now, and I remember that before she went there, she spent a lot of time with Latinos in the United States from New York, and so she was there and she was making rice and beans, and these old Italian women were like, "No, no, no, honey, it's pasta and beans." She goes, "No, it's rice and beans." No, 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 it's pasta. Nobody eats rice and beans, honey. No, no, it's pasta and beans. <laughs> like they wasn't even like, "Oh, that's different." They just couldn't accept in their mind that these foods exist. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, when it came to the Colombian exchange, you know, certain things like tomatoes and, and even potatoes and some other things, they accepted well before anybody else did. But then since then, they haven't really done too much accepting. It moves slowly. It's it's fascinating to see where change does come in. This might be a topic for another episode, but um, seeing where, uh, where, for example, kebabs have made inroads. It's often uh, late night. Uh, late night snacks and the edges of the menus, the appetizers and the desserts. Those are things that we all love. And those are places where people are more willing to take their first risk. Yeah. Especially when they've been drinking and they want something to eat in the middle of the night. Oh, the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I used to, we, we mentioned before that uh, you and I actually uh, lived in, in Rome around the same time, around 2018, 2019. And I'll tell you, some of the best, some of the best foods I had out there were, were at the Turkish shops. <laughs> so by Terminus. Oh, <laughs> True. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> oh, yeah. So thank you so much. I mean, this is a very interesting topic. And I guess the, the we want to end off this, uh, finish this off with, where did this lead people? So we, we talked about this uh, idea of bringing in foods from from Africa and and showing off this pseudo uh, prowess that, they, that the Italians had at this point in, in colonialism. Where did this eventually lead to? And, and how does it compare to what we see there today? So a lot of um, what the futurists did was condition the Italian public to be less shocked when fascist policy introduced some really similar ideas about food. The futurists loved provoke. So they rejected pasta as, quote, an absurd gastronomic tradition. Sorry, an absurd gastronomic religion. Um, they said, Artuzzi's day is over, referring to um, the science of Science in the Kitchen and the Art of Eating Well, basically one of the foundational cookbooks of Italian cuisine. And by positing a new Italian cuisine that was basically foams, powders, and pills, so ingredients as the raw material for art that was going to fuel the body rather than sate it, that was going to spark bodies, they put this idea of essentially an Italian Uber mention, um, you know, like the Nazi German Superman into, right. into currency. So even though these ideas were very shocking when they came out with the 1932 futurist cookbook, just a few years later, Benito Mussolini is able to seem relatively moderate when he puts some of these same ideas into real policies. He introduces the battle for bread. 
he introduces the battle for rice. So all of this warlike language around food, 1930s Italians are already used to it from the futurists. The ideas of food as powders and pills, that primes the way for some of fascism's corporate allies to start bringing in heavily industrialized foods. When you don't have a lot to eat, you need to get by on powders and gels. And finally, the idea of nativism, um, of extreme Italianization. The Futurist Cookbook actually has a little mini dictionary in the back that translates Amer uh, English and French culinary terms into Italian. So a bar becomes a cuisibebe, one drinks here. Mm -hmm. And that sort of hyper-nationalism that, again, at the edges and in food seems sort of absurd, then create it basically it normalizes that kind of nationalism and it makes it a lot easier for a dictator like to like Mussolini to put those ideas into law. And that's a great point because we see time and time again whenever you have extreme uh political changes in a country such as with fascism, it almost never happens overnight. It takes years, sometimes decades of preparation for the people to accept it. And and you mentioned something I, I found quite interesting as well about accepting powders and gels as food. And we know that Italians obviously are very uh, particular about their food. In fact, you could even say that perhaps some of the reason that Italians really didn't travel the world outside of the Mediterranean until uh, much later on was because while the English and Spanish sailors were okay eating hardtack and, and salted pork, Italians at the same time had full kitchens on their ships. And so they never wanted to really be more than a day or two away from land where they can have fresh ingredients and make their, their, their foods. Which, who knows, maybe played a huge role in, uh, in why Italians never really colonized the world compared to other people. Because <laughs> they just couldn't, they just couldn't leave their, uh, they couldn't leave their fresh fruits and vegetables behind. I mean, Italian cuisine is truly one of the most successful Italian ex exports. Uh, you know, popular in Italy and popular around the world. It's probably the most beloved cuisine. Yeah, it's probably the most popular cuisine in the world. I've, I, I'll, I'll tell you, that I've been to some pretty remote places in pretty remote parts of the world, like in uh, Latin America and different places. And I can tell you, there's always a Chinese, a place for Chinese food and Italian food. <laughs> doesn't matter. There is always you, the you, spaghetti reigns, always, despite oh, yeah. Mussolini, <laughs> pasta reigns eternal. <laughs> All right, Diana. Well, it's been a, a pleasure having you on the show again. Again, to, uh, let's remind our listeners, you have your new book out, Feeding Fascism, The Politics of Women's Food Work. And I mentioned this in the last episode as well. I just want to reiterate if you want something that is extremely well-researched with sources and, and information that you really can't find anywhere else, this is the book for you. And so what kind of people do you think would appreciate this book most, Diane? So I would say if you have, um, if you've already read some of the Italian culinary classics, if you've read Under the Tuscan Sun, if you've been following Stanley Tucci, and now you want to go one step deeper and you want to know where are the great food museums? What are the objects and spaces that women were, uh, were using? What was a kitchen like in the past? You want to feel like you can walk into that pantry, rifle through the drawers, and then have somebody standing next to you and say, did you know that this political event is the reason why there's that particular packet of pasta on the shelf? then Feeding Fascism is the book for you. So basically conversations between me and my wife. 
<laughs> she always gets annoyed. Similar. She she always gets annoyed whenever I, I start talking about it. She goes, okay, thank you for that information. So you're going to eat or not? <laughs> <laughs> well, Diana, if, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. If you want to <laughs> rifle through the pantry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Diana, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for joining us these last two weeks. And uh, hopefully you can come on again in the future. We'd, be, we'd uh, love to have you back. Oh, that sounds great. Thanks so much for ha having me. Until next time, this has been Dave Militello, who reminds you, we all write our own history. So make yours delicious. <laughs>